a couple of notes to be made as we get started this morning. Um, we are trying out a new microphone that I'm really excited about. Um, I don't have to have that thing around my ear, and I'm really thrilled. The unfortunate piece is we don't know how loud or how quiet it's going to be as things get going. So, um, you know, extend some courtesy to us. It might be irritating to you. We'll do our best to get it right on the sweet spot of the tie. You'll be able to figure out it's higher or lower. We'll figure it out. But this morning is our first giving it a go. The other noteworthy piece is I'm skipping this morning, as you noticed, if you were with us last week, I'm skipping 18, um, verse 18 of, of the text. Um, not because it's irrelevant, um, but uh, Pastor Dan is going to handle um, verse 18 as a standalone sermon um, next week. Um, and so uh, he's done a particular work on uh, the topic of divorce and produced uh, particular studies on the topic of divorce. So I asked him as we were approaching this passage um, if he would uh, handle the topic as a standalone sermon. It's an important piece for the evangelical church um, to, to, to talk about um, and to spend some time on. Uh, statistically speaking, unfortunately, we're in a place where life among the people of God as far as marriage and union, divorce, separation, uh, is not statistically hardly any different um, from those who are unaffiliated with the church. So given the heightened uh, situation for divorce, I I think it would be appropriate for us to spend uh, a little bit of time uh, and treat just verse 18. So we'll be doing that next week. For our time this morning of what has been read, we'll handle the entirety of 16 from uh, verse 19 through 31. And to get started, what we've been seeing, um, if you've been with us for a season of time now, as we've been going through Luke's gospel, we've been dealing with a large portion of parables for a season of time now. And time and time again, see there's a pop on the microphone, Um, but you were already notified, so you don't care, right? Um. Time and time again with the parables, uh, we see that parables are used of our Lord, whether it's, no matter the gospel you pick to study, they're used to confound the wise of this age. People who think it's easy, that they have it all figured out. Um, Our Lord uses then parable instruction in order to confound them, to make them almost stumble over the truth, almost to conceal it. And yet, to those of humble estate, those who are taught not by the wisdom of men, but by the Spirit of God, a parable is immensely clarifying. The primary way the parables do the work of confounding and clarifying is by changing the assumptions and expectations of the conversation. For example, you have the parable that we have covered. Just briefly think with me. We have covered the parable of the kingdom. Right? The kingdom is supposed to be like this, external, powerful, and obvious. But our Lord uses that assumption, that expectation, to then speak of the kingdom, if you recall, as a mustard seed. What? Right? A mustard seed. No, it comes in great force. No, it spreads like, well, let me say, leaven almost imperceivably so. 
Parables are used to change the assumptions and the expectations of the conversation. The wedding feast. Wedding feasts are occasions for the important. This is who should come. This is who should be there. These are the seats of the prominent. And yet our Lord uses the wedding feast to explain exactly who is important in relationship to the kingdom. And it's not the people you thought. The parable we covered most recently, besides the money manager, was just the prodigal son parable. Again, by the time we get to the end of the parable, as our Lord is making clear, the assumption is the eldest brother is the loyal son. By the time we get to the end, however, we see our Lord instructs, it's the eldest son who is bringing the shame on his father. You see, parables change the current expectation for the conversation. And they sort of bring to the forefront an unexpected dynamic. Almost an alternate reality. You think this way, and the reality is the truth is working this way. And that is what we're going to see again this morning. Our Lord uses this particular parable before us in chapter 16 to change the current assumptions and expectations regarding wealth and prosperity. He's been talking about wealth since the very beginning of chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, all the way through from the money manager. Then last week we noticed he's still hammering wealth. Why? Because we're so susceptible being carried away by it. And he wants us to grasp, you cannot serve God and money. You have this group over here who thinks they can. Verse 14, they can't. Why not? Because they love money. Therefore, they can't, verse 13, serve and love God. From the popular perspective of the first century, it's amazingly similar to the 21st century. External prosperity and wealth is a sign that confirms God's blessing. In other words, we could say it's something like this. The prosperity gospel was alive and well in the first century. It's nothing new. The haves have because they love God. The have-nots Well, they have not because they are sinful and displeasing. This is the first century concept. Thus, the Pharisee must be someone who loves God because how do we know that? Well, he has. He possesses. And we all know that if you love God, you possess. And then we got this guy over here. He has not. Well, he shouldn't because he's a certain kind of guy. He must not be pleasing to God. Again, nothing new under the sun, as Solomon said. We're still hearing the same message from pulpits around America right now. The prosperity gospel. But it's not just the Pharisees who are thinking this, right? Even among the disciples, we don't have time to turn there. But in John 9, you might want to note, the conversation that takes place, even among the disciples in John 9, Jesus sees a blind man who had been blind all his life since birth. Guess what the disciples ask him? 
Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? What do you mean? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, it is so intuitive, it is so natural to each of us that when we are pleasing God, we expect to have a certain type of blessed existence. We think so naturally that when we are pleasing to God, we will possess a certain quality of life that will be reflective of our good virtues. It's natural. It's not like some people do. It's natural, all of us do, at a certain strike within our mind. Thus we grumble and we strive against hardship. I was watching the sports segment on the news the other day, and a golfer, and I just, it just struck me, a golfer had this incredible shot. Um, I can't remember if it was a hole-in-one or whatever it was. It, it was, it was you know, noteworthy. It was, it was a very, very important and good shot. What was more interesting, however, was the, the sports newscaster. After the highlight of the man making the shot, this, the news uh, sportscastman says, um, wow, he must have went to church twice this week. Right, because that could only be the explanation in a way. There is a sense of, even in jest, a connection between prosperity and pleasure before God. Blessedness and being a man or woman of virtue. Therefore, if we're not blessed, we must not be men or women of virtue. This is the current expectation on the ground in chapter 16 of the first century context. And this is what our Lord seeks through this parable to challenge, directly confront each of us in our expectations that we're too blessed to be stressed. Must be true. If you're not stressed, you must be blessed because the stress has been eliminated because God is blessing you. And he's saying, no. That's actually not the case at all. Notice the passage where we begin in verse 19. Our Lord brilliantly telling yet another amazing parable. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. That's the entry point of the parable. Right? Okay, so I, I want to stop right there in 19 because you have to appreciate the details of the text. Our Lord is not picking just some okay guy with a pretty good quality of life. Somebody you wish maybe you were a little bit more like. But rather he is picking like the apex example, the perfect example by every stroke, every detail of a person who possesses their best life now. Right? Because the point is to change the expectation. 
The expectation is this. Oh, yeah? Well, I'll raise you this. Well, you'd live a pretty good life. No, how about, let's talk about it honestly. Let's talk about it honestly. Let's, let's start with this. A guy who lives the best life. Not okay. How so? We'll notice the rich detail of the text. It very begins with three details in verse 19. Notice the first one. There is a rich man. Now he's going to develop who this person is to challenge our expectations of blessedness. He was, number one, clothed in purple and fine linen. Now, again, it's not that he's just simply clothed clothed in fine linen, but purple is significant. It is the most highly esteemed dye of the first century. This you know from just history alone. He is kind of that, it was, I don't know if this is right or wrong, it was coming to my mind, uh, the, the, the sharp-dressed man of, of ZZ Top, if that makes any sense. Um, he is that man, um, you know, walking around with his purple linens on, And everybody knows it. He's a sharp-dressed man. Highly esteemed fabrics. Dyes that others know. He's rich. Check him out. Notice the next detail, though. The next critical piece that we see, just this man in his overwhelming lifestyle of wealth. He feasts, you notice there in the text, every single day. It's not like, you know, hey, he he does it once a week. He really gets down and has a good meal. This guy feasts daily, every day. Now, in an agriculture and society, that would be substantially noteworthy, that this person doesn't just get by. He doesn't meagerly live off the land. He feasts. This guy has food, a lot of it, every single day. Notice the term in the text that describes his feasting every day. Noteworthy in the passage is the term translated sumptuously. Again, if you're to understand the terminology of just how much or upon what this guy is feasting, he is feasting upon expensive food. Again, this is noteworthy. He's not just a little bit better than you. He's a lot better than you. Perhaps he even shops at Whole Foods. But the third piece of this gentleman's richness that describes again, then he must be blessed of the Lord. Because these are evidences, sure signs of a blessed life before the Lord. In other words, without him, we don't really know what to think about you. But in the presence of them, they're reassuring signs, both to yourself, I am blessed of the Lord. And from others' perspective, he must be blessed of the Lord. So our Lord is just establishing great blessing upon him, clothing, food, and thirdly, he has a house of the rich and famous. Notice his amazing house. Perhaps we're grasping, where's it at in the text? Well, it begins really in verse 20, in the first portion, where Lazarus is taking up residence. Lazarus is seated at the man's gate, a point of entry. 
I'm sure you've seen pictures or, 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 or seen other items of first century housing. Um, they're more like flats, standalone flats, or buildings that have multiple, multiple families living within that. Um, not everybody has a featured gate that, you know, keep people, particularly like Lazarus, on the outside and ensure that everybody can have a party on the inside. This is what the man has. He is a man of fine purple linen. He is a fine-dressed man. He feasts every day, not just on a little something around, luxurious, expensive foods, and he eats it every day. This is stale. I need new. Fine. Got it. And he has an amazing house to do it in. Again, painting a picture of a man who, as one writer notes, this man is by all accounts, quote, enormously wealthy. Now, that's our entry point into the parable itself. For what purpose? To change our expectations. To change the conversation. And notice how these three elements of wealth that we see in the man, the, the, the points of prestige, find their polar opposite in this man named Lazarus. It is an interesting, noteworthy point, I think, that the, the rich man never receives a name in the parable. He's just described by his life, the blessings he has. Perhaps there's something to be said there about the man's identity being consumed with these items. As far as what we need to know about him is that he was really rich. There's something of humility yet identity in the other person because we know his name. So take a look at verse 20 and 21. And at his gate, that is outside the house of the rich and famous, as it were, at his gate was laid a poor man. Again, we could stop there, but we're not. It's not that all you need to know about this man is that he was poor. But he has a name. A poor man named Lazarus. Covered with sores. Who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Again, notice the first detail of the text. Do I need to move this? Is it too loud? Is it popping? I think I hear it. Notice the first detail of the text is that Lazarus is so weakened by the sores if you look at, um, he was laying there, and, and we're told a little bit as to why he was laying there. He's covered with sores. There's something about him being crippled here, clearly, and covered and cloaked in open sores, open wounds that leave him completely immobile. The verb is significant as well to help us understand just how difficult Lazarus has it. The term that is translated was laid is a passive indicating that someone else, not Lazarus himself, but someone else, friend, family, neighbor, 
was bringing Lazarus over and laying him down at this man's gate. I don't know, you know, how, how regular it was for Lazarus to be here. Again, it's not the point of the parable. But someone had to bring Lazarus over and lay him down at a place where he expectantly could beg. This is in contrast, again, to the man who is the sharp-dressed man of purple. Here, a man named Lazarus is brought and laid down by someone next to this man's gate just so that he could have a chance to beg for food. The contrast couldn't be greater. So let me summarize the contrast. I'll read the text and then let's pick out the contrast just briefly. Let me begin with you again in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every single day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his source. There's three simple pieces of purposeful contrast here. Number one, the rich man, and don't miss the details of the text, was covered in purple. And Lazarus, as you see, is covered in sores. Their experience in life could not be more drastically different. They're both dressed. But the way in which they are dressed could not be more different. One dressed in fine linen that soothes the skin. Almost like, you know, in the 80s, everyone wearing a silk shirt. Maybe people still do, I don't know. Either way, the feel of silk on the skin. Dressed. But then there's this other man who's dressed. He's dressed in sores. They cover him. The second contrasting feature of the text so clearly in life is that the rich man is, as we've said, feasting sumptuously, expensively, and he does it every day. Lazarus begs the same amount. While the man feasts, Lazarus begs. And it's not like he begs for what the rich man has. But Lazarus just begs for what has fallen from the table. A friend carries him to the gate and lays him down there so that he can be in proximity in order to beg for what falls from the table. Essentially, Lazarus is a dumpster diver. I'm feasting sumptuously. I'm eating brand new food daily. I'm chowing down on the finest delicacies. 
And Lazarus just hopes to be in position to have whatever they missed or purposely discarded. And they both do it daily. The third piece of purposeful contrast in order that our Lord might get our attention and wake us up to the reality that goes unseen. No, this must be the interpretation. Look at his life. These are his blessings. This is who he is. And he says, stop thinking on that plane. Let me tell you a story. There was a rich man and then there was a poor man named Lazarus. Stop thinking this way. You have to think this way. The third piece of purposeful contrast is that the rich man is living in a beautiful home. He is covered in safety and kept safe in a beautiful home. Lazarus, by contrast and on purpose in this story, lives in total exposure. Their experience of life could not be more dramatically different. A beautiful home, a gate that keeps people like Lazarus out, and Lazarus with no home and outside the gate in exposure. But it doesn't just stop for Lazarus that he's in a place of exposure. Look at what that exposure gets him. And and again, you don't want to miss the details of the text because it's meant to really push your sensibilities, to really make you consider what you're being told. Look at the depth of Lazarus's despair. So you know he's been passively laid down in verse 20 in this position at the gate. It's not like he can get up and leave when he's uncomfortable. He's been laid there. Someone will have to collect him from there. Being covered with sores, notice how bad it gets. Verse 21, the text says, moreover. So again, even on top of begging and laying in the dirt at this man's gate, it doesn't just stop for Lazarus that he's humiliated, but even the stray dogs come and pester him. They come and lick his wounds. We have a tiny little picture of this in our house every single morning. We don't have open sores just running down our legs, but we have an experience with a German shepherd dog that the only thing Adrienne can't stand about the dog is that it licks her just randomly on the legs. And it's an irritant of the highest proportions. Is a dog just randomly pass by and lick your leg? Why did you do that? No one loves that feeling of randomness and just a wet spot now near my knee. Why? Um, It happens every day. And so you're thinking, in that tiny little picture, totally a thousand miles removed, a million miles removed from what this man Laz was actually going through, the point being, it's not a pleasant feature of the passage that random stray dogs come to a man who cannot get away from them and licks at his scabs. 
the general point of the text for you to consider at the opening scene of these two men is that these two men, and you should just simply embrace what's being told here, embrace the fact that these two men couldn't be further apart in their experience of life. That's the point so far. They couldn't be further apart in their experience of life. This, our Lord, again, heightens the life of a rich man unknown to us and heightens the hardship of a man named Lazarus who is told to us. These two experiences could not be further apart. Correct? And the audience is sitting there saying, correct. And then he says, but it's not just in life where these two men's experiences couldn't be further apart. What do you mean? Look at the experience in death. Verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Just, just to get through the detail about Abraham's side, it, it's a way of referencing the afterlife in a blessed condition of re- inheriting the blessings of Abraham. This man, in other words, is in heaven. That, that's the experience. He is at Christ's side. That this is the picture of Abraham's side. He is carried off to the place of rest, and it's here in first century, uh, references Abraham's side. So no big details there. It's the pleasantries of the next dimension. That's, that's what you're assuming it would be. That is what it is. So the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man. So again, we have two contrasting lives, both in life and now in death. The rich man also died. And there's one last notation about his blessed life in time. Notice it at the end of that sentence. The rich man also died and was buried. And now he wakes up in verse 23 in Hades. Again, an, another statement of the, the life after death, the other dimension. The, the, he, he wakes up in a self-conscious position as well. And it's not a blessed estate. It is being in torment. And he lifts up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off. And notice who else he sees there. He sees Lazarus at his side. Again, at this point, the great equalizer is introduced into the conversation. Rich, poor, accomplished, educated, or not. Death comes to all in this room without distinction. This is the force of the parable. As the kind of colloquial saying goes, Father Time remains undefeated. And it's in time, in place, where the rich man receives his final acknowledgement among men. The best that his life got him was a decent burial. That's it. All that sumptuous feasting, all those fine-dressed 
outfits and living in that sweet house. What it got him was a decent burial. He had to have gotten more. No, that's it. He got a decent burial. Lazarus, on the other hand, do you you notice what happened to Lazarus? Look at verse 22. Again, he died. In other words, Lazarus was simply discarded. He died. That's it. He died. No one had to carry him anymore to lay him down that he might beg. He, 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 he died. Did you hear about that guy that always is hanging out over at the rich man's house? Did you hear he died? Did he? Yeah. That's it. Maybe a, a mention. But the rich man, for all of his wealth and all of his blessings, he got a decent burial. And yet now the equalizer has taken place and both appear to be conscious. I think that's a critical piece of, of reading the rest of the parable. And I'm not going to develop it, but I'll leave it with you. There, there, there is an argument that is, that is well underway for, for a long time now. And it's worthy as a believer, particularly committed to the text of Scripture, to really meditate on the doctrine of eternal conscious torment. Often reference ECT, um, on the idea of saying that that is no longer a legitimate perspective. That is no longer a biblical view. I think here you have evidence that is used of a self-reflexive consciousness in the eternal state. We don't just go into oblivion. We don't cease to exist. Many, in fact, Christian theologians are, are willing to kind of sell off the idea that believers don't. Believers go to an eternal place of self-reflexive consciousness, of blessing. But unbelievers don't. They just cease to exist. No matter how difficult it is to hear and to grasp. Some of us will grasp it more emotionally than others, more clearly than others. Nonetheless, no one has an easy time thinking of eternal conscious torment for those who don't receive Christ. But we're not allowed to decide that. Again, I I don't want to keep going to develop it, but it's worth noting that we meditate on the reality that our Lord reveals here that there is a self-reflexive consciousness in eternity for everyone. Again, back to the text then to notice the most shocking detail of the passage is yet to be made known. And I want it, this is what we'll draw our application from as well, and we're winding down our time in the parable. This is perhaps the most shocking piece of the text, and purposely so. I'll begin in verse 23. And in the afterlife, Hades, in the place of torment. Again, he knew he was being in torment. It was self-reflexive. He knew his experience so much so that he lifted up his eyes in that place and he saw Abraham. That's a significant piece. Again, this is going to be the revealing, most shocking piece of the text. He saw Abraham. And he saw him a long way off. 
And then he saw this man that he saw every day outside his gate. If he ever looked out the curtain and he saw him laying there waiting for some scraps or trying to dumpster dive in the area. Oh my goodness, there's that guy. There's that Lazarus. Wait a minute. I see Abraham way over there. And is that Lazarus at his side? Verse 24. And he called out. Maybe you can mark or highlight or consider, just meditate on what's being said here in the next word. Father Abraham. Father is a key piece. He sees Abraham, he sees Lazarus, and he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And and send Lazarus, you know, Lazarus. Send him to to dip the end of his finger in water and to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. You know his name now. What Abraham said to him, and, and, and this is the other key piece of this text, Notice how, how, how tremendously difficult the man's experience is in the afterlife because he is just asking not for a glass of water or, or at that time would have been a ladle of water. He's saying just have him dip his finger in it and just touch the tip of my tongue. That to me would be like a freshwater lake to swim in at this point. It's just that. I'm in anguish in this flame. Abraham says to him back, notice the way that Abraham relates to him, child. Remember, call to mind that you in your lifetime received your good things. The purple clothes, the sumptuous feasting, the incredible estate. That was in your lifetime. Call them to mind. Remember those days. Because in like manner, Lazarus remembers his days. Lazarus, in like manner, had bad things. While you had good things, Lazarus suffered. But now he is comforted here. And you are in anguish. You see, parables are used to change the expectations and the assumptions. But I had this, I I, I lived this kind of life. I know. You had your best life now. By all accounts, Lazarus was a godly man, clearly. He, he died and he raised in the presence of the Lord. He's at Abraham's side. He, he's in the place of blessed estate. As our Lord clearly says, he is comforted now. He no longer suffers. So, so think about the life of Lazarus being a saint, hoping in God and being laid at the gate of your neighbor. Change your expectations and assumptions of blessing. 
Because Lazarus suffered daily, publicly humiliated while he hoped in God. This last connection, and I'm going to wind down our time now. Um, look at verse 24 again. This is how I want, I want to end our time. <clears throat> Pointing out not simply that the man wakes up in torment, because that's obvious, <clears throat> and, it's, and, it, and, it's, and it's obvious that he had his good things in his life, and now he's in anguish. That's obvious. That's not what's shocking, necessarily. What's shocking to the man is that he thought himself to be a believer. The outcome was not his calculation. He thought himself to belong to the people of God. How so? Look at verse 24 again. He called out, Father Abraham. And look at the response. He said, Father, have mercy on me. Father Abraham. You, my father, my spiritual father. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water. Cool my tongue. I'm in anguish here. And Abraham doesn't say, I'm not your father. You don't know me. He acknowledges the relationship in time. Verse 25, Abraham said, Child? Remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things. In other words, what is so shocking about this text is that in life, the rich man belonged to the people of God. He belonged by covenant to the church. He knew himself to be a child of Abraham. He thought simply by belonging to the covenant people of God, attaching himself to the church, He was saved. In fact, his outward blessings were to him yet again confirming signs of his belonging to God. The embracing of the prosperity gospel only continued to harden his heart. I thought I belonged. In fact, all the blessings in my life they're confirming signs. If you don't have blessings, you don't belong to God. What type of blessing? Well, external blessings. Things, riches, ease, no stress, great career, great relationships. That's proof positive. You belong. I had all those things. Confirming signs. You're my father. But again... Death is the moment of revelation. It reveals to the rich man that indeed 
He did belong to the church, but only outwardly. Abraham acknowledges him to be a covenant child, but only outwardly. That is, as we'd say now, he went to church. He assumed that he belonged. Perhaps he was baptized. Again, if we move it forward in time. And he was a church member. He was faithful. He went to activities. But death revealed he only belonged externally. You see, when he woke up in torment, he wasn't like, well, I'm getting my just desserts. I'm getting all the things that were warned to me. I'm getting them. Father Abraham, I, I, I belong over there. You and Lazarus. Abraham to him, child. In life, you made different choices. You belonged externally, but only externally. To conclude our time together, then knowing in death, he finds in verse 26, there's nothing he can do now. He squandered his belonging. He belonged to the church only outwardly, never laying hold of it by faith and inwardly. Notice his response, verse 26. Abraham clarifies for each of us what that means to simply assume we're the people of God because we maybe go to church. Verse 26, and besides all of this, what you had in life and the suffering of Lazarus, Besides what you make of it at this point, between us and you, a great chasm isn't fluid, isn't able to be moved, but the chasm is fixed. Why? Well, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. You only belong, child, externally. You are never truly internally a member of the church. Verse 27, and I'll conclude our time with this last observation. Verse 27, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, Lazarus, send Lazarus over there to my father's house. Send him, commission him with a good word of repentance. Send him, for I have five brothers. Send him so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let your five brothers hear them. And he said, no, 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 no. Father Abraham, 
father, Abraham. But if somebody goes to them from the dead, think about it, somebody from the dead, they will repent. No, 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 they've heard the, they've heard the prophet. They've heard Moses. I heard Moses. I heard the prophets. No, 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 send, send a, a, a miracle. Do a healing. Send somebody from the dead. Yes, send Lazarus from the dead. No one will discredit a resurrection. Verse 31, and he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, you know, like really hear them, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Of course, our Lord is also speaking of his own resurrection, of which they still will not believe. It's the last statement of verse 31 I want to conclude with in our time this morning by making a final two-point applicational pieces to our time together that I really hope the text imprints upon you to consider. Again, if you don't you as an believer, you as an individual in unbelief, this is the weight of the word of God in verse 31. If you don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will you be convinced if someone should even rise from the dead in your hearing. Point number one of application. is the importance of hearing the word of God in faith. You see, let them hear Moses and the prophets. They've been hearing them. I heard them. Is there some other way faith comes through hearing? The hearing of the word of God. How important it is that each one of us come to Lord's Day, keep scripture before us to hear the word of God in faith. This man heard, and this man belonged to the church. But he never internalized it in faith. Until when? Until it was too late, and there was a chasm that is fixed. The importance of hearing the word of God in faith. And number two, the second important piece I want to conclude with and the curtain being rolled back, the expectations for blessing being changed. How do we change our expectations? How do we think differently? Through receiving the word of God in faith. 
And the second piece is the importance I want to impress upon each of us, particularly parents. The importance of transmitting and teaching the Word of God to our children in faith. Church isn't simply something we as families do. It is the privilege we possess because we've been set free from our sin. Our children must know this, must learn this, and must be prayed for that they also would rise up in faith, killing self-deceit at the mercy of the Lord through the instrument of the word would give them eyes that see the Lord who has set them apart. It is important for everyone children and adults to hear the word of God in faith lest we wake up and we see Lazarus and Abraham I wonder what happened but I belong to the church only externally. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. That our assumptions that we have and our expectations for how our life should go will be adjusted according to your word. That as we look upon the hardships of Lazarus, what we know to be true of him is that he suffered in hope. And when he died, he realized that hope for all eternity. So, Lord, if we are simply members of the church and we think that that is our redemption, and we are self-deceived, draw back our eyes that we might see reality, that we have yet to truly trust in you, to let our faith rest upon you, to receive all of you and all of your benefits as you're so freely offered to us in your gospel. All other ground is sinking sand. Rinse us, nourish us, enable us to grow in grace. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Do you remain with your